tell you about some very poor apartments. It's been surreal. It was freezing and said nothing. They just slumlord. And we had to use our stove to heat. They, they take your rent money and they don't do what they're supposed to do. I mean, I sleep with a baseball bat next to my bed. Because in Minneapolis, there's a housing crisis, which means there's a crisis within a crisis, an affordable housing crisis. As their landlord heads to court, tenants who live in these Minneapolis apartments fight for control of their buildings. We're here today because of his uh, lack of ability to be the leader in the community that he said he wanted to be. And in 2016, some tenants took on their landlord. They took on their landlord, who was a lot of people's landlord, and things unspooled broke records, revealed fraud, broke laws. How bad were things? <laughs> um, of course, there were roaches. You could literally see all the roaches inside um, of it. There's cockroaches. Um, it was disgusting. At first, as there were roaches in the building. And there were literally like baby roaches like coming towards my daughter's head. Um, I kept all my food in Ziploc bags. Cockroach. Yeah, they're bugs, you know. Especially a big roach problem. Spray, uh, Roach spray and whatnot. They climbed up the walls, and it was like a it was, it was like a scary movie. Safety was an issue here because I don't feel safe. And I'm in fear for my kids or whatever. Mold was an issue. From the water backing up. His windows are covered in mold. Black mold had her sick. She probably think it's making me sick. And it was just like black mold. Yeah, lots of mold here. Yeah, that's that one, and it makes me sick. Hold that thing. Things were bad. You get the point. The property manager in question is Stephen Friends of the Apartment Shop. I'm Matthew Schneeman. There are three reasons I shouldn't do this piece. One, I was a tenant in one of Friends' buildings and organized with the renters' rights group to improve maintenance. Two, spoiler alert, a class action occurred and I will be receiving money from it. And three, much of this story is the story of Spanish-speaking renters. And because I don't speak Spanish, this story will mostly focus on English-speaking tenants, which means I'll be missing a massive part of the story. So why did I go forward with making this? Because when I needed help, people helped me. Housing rights organizers helped me. My neighbors did. Pro bono lawyers. They helped me. And I discovered that their work is both interesting and boring and difficult and incredibly important. So here's their story, and my story. Boilers, roaches, fake children, and real rent. So you know roaches and mold were involved, but what happened? What happened that demands a full radio documentary about it. Well, do you want to start in 2012 or 2015 with the case? Uh, I should start earlier. I think it starts earlier. This is Jennifer Arnold, housing rights organizer with Inquilinos Unidos. I started to run into housing emergencies. People walking in being like, I have bed bugs. What do I do? Or my landlord told me I had to leave in a week. When you walked into 3325 Nicollet, you saw roaches crawling around on the walls. And so I started hosting these tenant meetings. I'd knock doors during the week and on Fridays we'd come together. And at the beginning it was like three people. And we'd eat bread and drink coffee and talk about what was happening. The building was owned by Stephen Friends. And this radio piece is kind of all about him. My coworker Norma Peets 
knew him. She was like, oh, no, I know Steve. He's a great guy. Let's just go talk to him and he'll resolve these things. So we went to his office. It was just me, no tenants yet. And I just said, hey, this is the kind of things I'm seeing in your building. And he was like, you know, I repair anything. I've got a lot of buildings. I repair anything if people ask for repairs. The repairs didn't happen. The group that would become Enculinos Unidos Por Justicia, or IX, helped a small group of tenants organize a protest at Friends' office. But five people, five tenants came. They were really scared. People were really scared at the beginning. They felt like they were going to lose their housing. And so it was really hard. They came and they told their stories. They talked about infestations. And, and the company the whole time just had this line, you know, like, if you told us about these problems, we would fix them. Um, and people were like, yeah, and we've told them, uh, we've told you over and over again. And, you know, at that time we... We knew about, you know, we were working in the 3057 building. People were really motivated. And we started to look for um, support, legal support. Sure. My name is Michael Coxon. I am a partner at Figure Baker Daniels. Michael Coxon was the lead attorney that helped with IX's TRA, Tenants Remedy Action, on behalf of the tenants. Well, we were approached by uh, IX uh, in 2015 where there were a list of issues that were um, accumulating at a particular... Not only were there bad infestation, there was a person on the first floor who had her apartment flooding with feces, and it got into the low 50s in people's apartment that week. Yeah, someone caught a, a mouse and, and put it in her freezer and brought it to court. Froze it and put it in a Ziploc bag. Attorney Michael Coxon. Make no mistake, this was found yesterday. They got to court, proved mice were a problem, proved that heat was a problem, but the case could be thrown out because of how TRAs work. And one of the things that you need to do if you represent a neighborhood organization is get a majority of tenants support for the neighborhood organization to move forward on the lawsuit. And we discovered in discovery that uh, there were three leases that were produced in discovery that weren't true leases in the sense that tenants actually lived in those units. Yeah, that sounds suspicious. And it sounded suspicious then, too. Coxon and his team asked for a walkthrough of the apartments. And during the walkthrough, uh, our associate Brian Washburn noticed odd things about three of the units. In one of the units, there were children's shoes and some clothes in the unit, but not the other sorts of things you'd expect in a household where a young child lives. Books, toys, those sorts of things were conspicuously absent. And so that's kind of where the, the sinking feeling came was this doesn't quite feel right. The leases don't seem to match up to real people. The units themselves don't seem to really be inhabited by anybody. And it turns out that they weren't. In court, it's validated that the leases are fake. Friends' lawyers resign immediately. Correct. Okay, what happens after that? So they got new counsel to come in and, and do the trial. And we learned another troubling fact that Mr. Friends had purchased these buildings from Mr. Zorbalas, and Mr. Friends was owning them and managing them on his own going forward. That turned out to be false. Lying in court, producing false affidavits, that's big. But the name Spiro Zorbalas led to something even bigger. We have to go back to 2012 for that story. Hi, how are you? Okay, well, I'm about to be interviewed by a gentleman from KFAI, so I'm going to... This is Randy Furst, veteran reporter for the Star Tribune. He's been following this story since the beginning, and the beginning starts with the end of landlord Spiros Orbalas. 
Mr. Sarbalas was uh, among, if not the biggest landlord in the city of Minneapolis. And they had a lot of uh, uh, problems with his apartments. Uh, the city had, had, had relatively recently adopted a new ordinance to try to, uh, try to tackle problem landlords. This ordinance provided that if you had two buildings where the licenses were revoked, you lost the right to have licenses in the city of Minneapolis for five years. And so this well-meaning ordinance caused Zorbalis to lose his license. Right, right. Uh, the city had a problem because he, he was such a large land, landlord that if they revoked all those licenses, it meant that nobody in those buildings could live there because you have to have a rental license in order to rent. And the city did not want to be responsible for throwing uh, uh, thousands of low-income tenants onto the streets. Well, along came an, uh, uh, a announcement that Stephen Friends was prepared to buy those buildings. And the city hailed this. A number of city officials said, this is great. Things are going, you know, they were so pleased that they had resolved this issue. But of course, the issue wasn't resolved. Uh, he was regarded as something of a hero. And of course, he wasn't actually a hero. Basically, Zerbalis got banned from renting, sold to friends, or secretly didn't sell to friends. And in 2016, this is discovered on accident because friends lying in court about the TRA led to a paper trail revealing that he lied about Zerbalis not being a business partner. Oh, yeah, all that came out in court when I was there. Jennifer Arnold of IX. All this other stuff that was coming out that was much bigger than the building. You know, the the business partnership. I was there in court when friends testified that Sorbalis owned a 50 to 70% stake in the, in, the, in the shared business that they had together. I remember um, the 60% profit margin. That also really stood out, that the business had a 60% profit margin. I remember when I heard that, I, was, I felt so angry. I mean, what business has a 60% profit margin? And the direct cost is like people's quality of life it's so it's so easy to draw the connection between those two things that it's like it's painful to realize so along with faking documents for court friends lied about having a business partner who was banned from the city michael coxon again okay and then after that revelation what does that lead what actions are taken? Well, we asked the court to recognize that fact and give these tenants the relief that they were entitled to. And I don't have the transcript in front of me, but he said something to the effect that that really sounds more like a class action issue and you should take it up in another court, which is what we ultimately did. And that class action became the largest tenant-related class action in Minnesota history. This story has two lanes. One, how friends in Zerbalis illegally rented, and two, the neglect of the buildings they illegally rented. Let's take a look at the neglect. One building on West Franklin Avenue was notorious for its heat going out, open access, water damage, and mold. Jess Anderson, former tenant, used to wash their dishes in the bathtub because maintenance was so poor. 
but she has a more exciting story. Once a woman knocked on my door and uh, she knocked on my door and said a bathtub had fallen through her ceiling floor and like was worried because she thought it was my bathtub that had fallen through. And I would like to know more about that, like if it happened. <laughs> it was a crazy story, so I went to the building to investigate. One man gave me a tour of the basement. Dilapidated storage units, informally turned into rooms for people to sleep in, spray-painted messages on the walls. It was not kept up. I kind of smell urine. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, that's, that's been around, too. Like I said, this place was just crawling with homeless people. I asked him if he ever heard about a falling bathtub. I don't know. It might have happened. We had two cats fall through our ceiling. What? Yeah. Wait, how, how did that happen? I don't know, we had a, there must be like a little hole in our bathroom and their bathroom's above ours. And the cat somehow got found away and just come crashing through. Twice, <laughs> two different cats. Cats just, but I think- It's unprofessional, but I love this cat thing. On the other side of the building, another tenant had a cat experience. There's a hole in the wall that my cat used to like crawl inside the walls. Like one day I was brushing my teeth and all of a sudden I see her poke herself out of this hole and I like literally almost myself. She scared the hell out of me. And I'm in like, the end, oh no God, proof of a bathtub falling through the ceiling. It would have been a cartoonish example of the lack of investment in the building. Safety, on the other hand, is the less dramatic but very real example. But I can't imagine that a lot of people feel terribly safe there. It just, it's not secure and it's been a very- Tenant Michelle Rivera knows the building isn't secure from personal experience. I've locked myself out of that building and used a credit card to open that main locking door in that building. Like, did it feel um, like you were in a movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been a- I'm, I'm forgetful, so I've been breaking into my parents' house to get back in most of my life. So, <laughs> um, it was, but, to put it lightly, uh, a porous building. A cold one, too. Oh my goodness. They didn't turn on the heat until many days or weeks past, like, the lowest temperature that the management is supposed to turn the heat on. And I knew that the polar vortex was coming, so I called in to complain again. This is Thor Nystrom. And, uh, so... Anyhow, inside my apartment during those three days, I had the biggest space heater that you can buy at Target, you know, like one of the big industrial ones. It was running full blasty at the time. It was it didn't crack forty two degrees inside my apartment those three days. Like I could see my breath and I was just in front of that that space heater the whole time. Thor sent me pictures he took during it. The space heater read forty two degrees. Yeah, I mean that was I think that was the worst winter I've experienced in Minneapolis just because it was like there was no refuge going inside where I lived because it was just cold. No bathtub falling through the ceiling, but... It's uh, 2.30 in the morning on... Uh, this is a cell phone video Thor took in the middle of the night. The uh, ceiling, a part of the ceiling, the part that I was talking about before. Oh, Jesus. Like, oh, God. Holy shit. Around two square feet of soaked plaster fell to an already soaked floor. During all of this, other tenants were taking on friends for similar problems. The TRA started, friends was caught lying in court, and then things got worse for everyone. Let's pick up where we left off with the legal side of the story. Randy first. 
journalist for the Star Tribune. December 2017, they revoked all of Friends' licenses. That, of course, created new new round of what's going to happen to the tenants in these buildings. When he knew that these licenses were in jeopardy and that he was about to lose them, started selling off all of his buildings. And so his next bright idea... This is Larry McDonough. He's a landlord and tenant law scholar and has been for some years. He also happens to be, you're going to love this, a jazz pianist. And so his next bright idea was that I'll sell them on contracts for deeds. Normally when you sell a building, there's a bank between the seller and the buyer. So if the buyer defaults on the payment, the building goes to the bank. But with a contract for deed, there's no one in between. So if the buyer defaults, the building just goes back to the seller. But if I miss one of those payments, you can cancel that contract for deed in 60 days. Now you're the owner of the property again. Friends sold nearly 30 buildings under contract for deed. One building valued at $12 million was sold with a down payment of $2,000. Almost everyone found this suspicious. And so that was another one of his kind of little, kind of funny moves. And, you know, like, again, like a Coen Brothers movie, it, it didn't take a lot of rocket science knowledge to figure out that's what he was doing. And so the city said, no, that doesn't really count as we're not going to issue licenses to these folks that are buying these on a contract for a deed because we don't buy what you're doing. So Friends sells, the new owner's rental's license get denied, the buildings go back to Friends, but Friends can't collect rent because he doesn't have a license, but he does illegally collect rent by threatening people with eviction, but that's another thing. Anyway, Friends has many buildings that he can't sell because they're so neglected, but he can't flip them because people are living in them. It's a mess. Five buildings in the Corcoran neighborhood of South Minneapolis come up with a solution. Five buildings in the Corcoran neighborhood. Uh, A number of the tenants continue to live in these buildings. Uh, They haven't uh, 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 been paying rents. Um, And they have wanted to purchase the buildings from Mr. Friends. And with the help of uh, Renters United... Renters United for Justice or Inquilinos Unidos por Justicia? A foundation, uh, some some land bank and uh, agreed to help finance the purchase of these buildings for something a a little over four million dollars. 4.7 million. Now, Friends wants to flip the buildings, the tenants want to buy them, but they don't have enough money. So there's not a lot they can do. So with IX, they organize. They organize like crazy. They go to the police and ask them not to partake in any forced evictions. Community organizations on it. It's got more than 500 neighbors on it, asking the sheriff to not take part in any eviction. The Corcoran tenants also collected $125,000 plus the $4.7 million from a land bank to buy the building from friends. But in the meantime, the tenants collected another $4,700 to pay the outstanding water bill. So the 
Steve Friends hasn't paid the water bill. He hasn't paid the water bill for the last six months, and we're here to pay. He's I wasn't there, but thanks to Facebook live streaming, the entire bill paying was captured, and it was, at times, kind of boring. Waiting. Nice waiting, waiting, waiting. game. It's not like yeah. on the... La bureaucracia. Bureaucracy is a little slow, <laughs> you know. That was Roberto de la Riva from IX and tenant leader Denise paying the water bill. The tenants in IX kept pressure on Friends. Another protest was at Friends' house. Show your face! Show your face! Show your face! Bueno, como hemos estado luchando durante... Bueno, yo llevo este conocimiento de ocho meses de que llevo luchando con el señor Steve, ya que le hemos pedido que realmente este nos venda los apartamentos. We've been in this battle for eight long months, and really what we want is to purchase the buildings. We want Steve Friends for you to sell them to us so that we can create a cooperative. And then they went to the government plaza for another protest. As their landlord heads to court, tenants who live in these Minneapolis apartments fight for control of their buildings. Tenant leader Vanessa Del Campo spoke. Because we are here having a, a great problem with evictions and displacement. And we are scared that they are going to take away our home. Let's go to Corcoran, to the buildings they're talking about. I met some kids and one older brother in the hallway. So I'm recalling. What? Do you Morenos? That's DJ's house. So those two kids were confused as to what actually happened. But breaking in was something that did happen regularly at these apartments. How do your uh, parents feel about this? Uh, no, they feel the same way. They're, they're just, you know... That's teenager Renel Garcia. They just don't really want us to like open the door. To, like, Another tenant, Emilio. Biggest drogas, problem right now is that the, the front door doesn't lock and there's... Another tenant, Demand Selman, told me about people who would pretend to be the landlord and collect rent. He also caught someone breaking into an apartment by parking a car under the window and jumping in. But the saddest story, for me, was this one. It's been random, you know, homeless people coming in, being in this building, so I usually let my kids, I will open this door right here and let, put something in the door and let my kids run right here. And after that, I just, I just stopped doing it. Yeah, you still think it have a teeny bit of A little bit of space to play because I don't trust the outside part. He's talking about his hallway. He didn't think his kids were safe in the hallway. Conditions were bad, but still people needed a place to stay, especially the Latinx tenants that didn't speak English. Corcoran is in a neighborhood with many other Spanish speakers. Because of the threat of eviction, the tenants, with the help of IX, crashed a city council meeting. It was tense, but the council voted to let them speak. As tenant leader Vanessa Del Campo spoke, activist tenants walked up onto and behind the dais and unfurled a banner that said, Don't evict Vanessa. City Council President Lisa Bender interrupted. In terms of we have and a number of frequently receive threats. And I just, I understand that that is not happening right now, but 
this is, we just have to pause because we can't allow people to come back behind the dais. Like mm -hmm. I understand. You can go down there. There are a lot of other places. We just when tenant rights are under attack, what do we do? It was a tense moment. The city council reflected a group of people that cared about housing justice. Some had even come from activism. But they were stuck, or at least they felt stuck. The tenants had worked with lawyers, the police, the city council, the media. They'd gotten money to buy the buildings, and at every turn it seemed everyone was there willing to help, but still, evictions loomed. Let's take a moment to understand why Friends enacted such a business plan. Is he just like a heartless poverty profiteer or something else? Well, I can't, I can't get into his mind as to why he did what he did. Brandy First, reporter for the Star Tribune. The, the argument that was made by tenants' attorneys was that their allegation is, was that... Uh, uh, Friends and Zorbalas were trying to, mac to uh, extract maximum profits from these buildings. And to do that, they had to um, defer maintenance, uh, had to do, as, to do as little as they could in order to maximize the amount of money that they were taking in. Sure. Kind of makes sense, but other property managers aren't as austere with their maintenance. Was there something else going on? So, so Friends had a good reputation in the city. Jennifer Arnold. He was well looked at by neighborhoods and by the city. That's the reason that my coworker Norma introduced me to him as a good guy, because he had this reputation of somebody who was present in his buildings. He wasn't an absentee landlord. He was there. Um, and I heard that anecdotally from people in the neighborhood who said he had he had developed some projects in downtown St. Paul, maybe. I don't remember exactly. And had maybe there were condos and, ha and lost a bunch of money on it. And I heard from him on the stand that he was no longer able to get regular bank loans. And so going into partnership with Sorbalas was a way to have access to money that he needed. Now, I don't have access to Friends' books. I heard from other people that friends lost developments or properties in the crash of 2008. His court record shows that he's been sued by TCF Bank, Boundary Waters Bank, JP Morgan Chase, Urban Works, Architecture Franklin National Bank, Bank Mutual, Midwest Hardwood Corporation, Ramsey County Regional Railroad Authority, Equity Bridge Funding, Wilmington Trust, Landhold LLC, Pinnacle Construction, the City of Minneapolis, Quality Trusted Commercial Roofing, Custom Plastics Laminate, and many individuals. I don't know what the results of these lawsuits were, but it implies that he was under financial stress. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think that's an excuse for the decision that he made around how he was going to treat people. Um, but I think, you know, his identity was as somebody who managed properties and he wasn't ready to give that up. Um, and going into, into business with Sorbalas was a way to continue to do it. And it sounds like from the emails and things that Sorbalas, that that was a really difficult relationship and probably continues to be. A very difficult relationship. 
After Friends was called falsifying documents for court, Michael Coxon and his team asked for a forensics team to copy the computers and hard drives of the apartment shop. When they finally got access to some of the information, they found emails and contracts describing exactly why so little maintenance had been done on the buildings. Here's an excerpt from one email on January 21, 2015, from Spiro Sobalis to Stephen Friends. Quote, You are not to write any more checks. This will happen only in Florida, short of emergencies. End quote. And, quote, You are my operating partner, but I am also the majority owner. Please do not ignore this. You might not like some things, but this is the deal. You signed up. End quote and, quote, You continue to use our funds as if they were solely yours. I will not tolerate it any further, end quote. In an article by Randy First where he details these emails, Randy writes, quote, The document says that if friends did not generate a defined profit each year based on the number of buildings being operated, he could earn as little as $120,000 annually. If he made the defined profit, he could earn about $1.2 million or more." End quote. I'm not sure I'd say as little as $120,000, but it certainly is a lot less than $1.2 million. In the very beginning of the story, Jennifer Arnold of IX told us, and the company the whole time just had this line, you know, like, if you told us about these problems, we would fix them. Um, and people were like, yeah, and we've told them, uh, we've told you over and over again. For me, gaslighting is at the heart of this story. I'll detail a couple of ways tenants were manipulated. First example, these are just old buildings. Younger, younger renters, like 20-year-olds. Like I call them stupid millennials. Um, it's just this, this... You have to understand, this building is 100 years old. You are That's Brenda, my old neighbor. Does she have a point? What is a valid example of the building just being old? I asked some maintenance people and property managers. Valid. The floors are uneven. There are cracks in some walls. Old radiators have a steam valve that can drip sometimes. Older buildings are cold because they have poor insulation. Cast iron pipes can get sediment in them, so water pressure can be bad. The building being old is not, however, responsible for water damage, mold, roaches. I asked Brenda about bugs. So it sounds like you're saying the problem was with sloppy tenants and not The management. problem was with sloppy tenants, because as soon as I would call about it, it would be fixed or cleaned. Brenda wasn't the only one blaming the tenants for bugs. The apartment shop did it as part of the extermination process. Yeah, it was a very extensive checklist. Um, I ended up having to throw out like a, a lot of my food. This tenant is talking about a checklist. Maintenance would send a list of things to do before exterminations, and if you didn't comply, they would send a letter stating that the extermination wasn't effective. Here's tenant Molly Hasbrook. And eventually when I would call, I called to report again, like, all right, well, I have roaches again for like the umpteenth time. I think it was Steve who said, well, and they were, you know, they were really unable to kind of get in there um, the way that they needed to because the it says here that the cupboards weren't properly cleared out. Valetta Johnson. But whenever I would complain about it, 
they would just tell me to clean my apartment more. Um, and the actual landlord, uh, Steve Friends, uh, he came in and uh, we had a talk and it was the most irritating conversation I've ever had with a person who's supposed to be in power. Um, he wiped his fingers across the side of my oven and was like, this is why you still have rodents. And I'm like, trick, like what? That's not why I still have them because you're not doing your job right. Yeah. Polly Crandall. Um, blame me. They always blamed my neighbors. So they would come in and spray. Um, I would leave for work. Um, and then by the time I got home from work, there were, there were bugs again crawling over uh, where they had just sprayed. It was, it was inconvenient. It just made me feel like I was not, um, like I just wasn't a clean person, <laughs> which I think also just kind of on the base of it, it was it was false but uh, yeah it just was it was just so gross and kind of just dehumanizing so the other form of gaslighting was just the understanding that cheap affordable housing meant worse quality but you know I, i'm starting to feel like that's what i get when i try to live somewhere that is less expensive like, this is one of the worst buildings we've ever lived in like but we ended up running from them again because it was like cheap i think that i was not surprised by it because it was cheap we picked it because it, it was, was cheap. cheap we were trying to, to save money but i did i didn't expect that maintenance requests wouldn't be like the squirrels the squirrel story basically it got into their house, couldn't get out, and then died. Let's hear from Larry McDonough, landlord-tenant-law scholar. You know, we have laws that allow those used cars to be uh, sold and not be in great shape. And I think people have just kind of accepted that that's kind of an aspect of landlord-tenant law. But that's not what the law says. I mean, landlord-tenant law says that as a landlord, I have an obligation to maintain the property in reasonable, reasonable repair, fit for the use intended by the parties, and in compliance with housing codes. And doesn't say, except if it's cheap. Many tenants, including myself, thought that cheaper rent meant roaches, water damage. Often when I interviewed people, they said things had been fine, and then they would list things that weren't fine. But for the most part, like they were pretty dope, you know what I mean? But, however, there was, like, a few issues. But, like, there was a problem with critters, especially a big roach problem. And then there were uh, legal threats that weren't accurate. Threats of eviction. Threats of suing. Even when they had no license. We can take you to court. That's true. But the full sentence would be, we can take you to court and then lose. Because Minnesota statute states you have to have a rental license to collect rent. But the most common form of gaslighting was the classic one. Denial. And they, like, our security door was always broken. The apartment shop did not use email or text. Everything was done over the phone, and so there was never a record of people's complaints. Always broken. And, like, everybody would call about it, and every time we'd call, they'd be like, nobody has complained about this before. And I'd be like, well, three of those calls were from me, so I know that at least I've complained about it. We learned from the court cases that the poor quality of the buildings was an intentional business model set up by Spiro Cerbalas, not just poor management. In Stephen Square Park, a property management company named Mint Properties LLC took over a collection of buildings. We can see in an informal experiment how true the apartment shop's excuses are. Same buildings, similar rents, 
new management. Yeah, they do. Um, actually, the people now, they're, they've been on schedule. They're really good. Um, they well, with the apartment shop, you know, my, my walk-in closet used to leak. Mm -hmm. And then they came, fixed it, and then it leaked again. But then Mint Properties came. You know, they, you know, apartment shop was terrible. No, it was pretty terrible. When did it get fixed under Caruso? The new management. They actually fixed it. Um, I was told before that there was no way to fix it. And they came here, and within a day, I had better water pressure. I Not really. Um, I honestly, it really honestly didn't get fixed until I think Mint Properties mostly took over. Um, when the apartment shop owned this building, the basement was infested with roaches. Um, we had mice in our walls. It's quite different now. Um, I met one family with a son who may be a vulnerable adult. Spider, it is dangerous. But remember, you're better to kill. So bug problems, is that what you were saying? That's a long time ago. A long time ago, before this experiment. That's a long time ago. Yeah, when the apartment shop, yes, but right now the new uh, owner, that's everything is okay right now, so. Yeah. Yeah. Charge Stephen Friends one count of perjury in writing under oath. Things are better now. But who's at fault? Friends? If that was the case, Friends has been punished. Why make a documentary just to further embarrass him? He lost his business, his license, he was fined $187,000 for lying to court, he had to return $18.5 million to renters, his reputation is ruined, and he was even made fun of by Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman when Freeman announced Friends' perjury charge. Questions? Mike, are you personally going to... Uh, prosecute this case, did you say? Well, you know, it'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'd see if I could go in court. Lots of times alleged perjuries are fudging or stretching the truth or I didn't understand. This one's very clear-cut. And yes, Mr. Friends is not guilty until proven in court. But this one, I'd like to try myself because this one's a winner. So, is it the city? Should we focus on them? Right after Zerbalos was exposed for mismanaging the buildings, they let the exact same buildings continue to be mismanaged. It's not like friends moved the buildings around so the city couldn't keep tabs on them. They were right there, and the owner, turns out, ended up being the exact same person. It seems we could blame the city. But maybe we can blame something else. You saw buildings in the 1920s before the... Uh, Great Depression. That's Kevin Dragsets, director of documentary, sold out affordable housing at risk. And then nothing in the during the Great Depression because there was no money, and then nothing really during the wartime years because all the money was going into wartime, um, and then everything goes into kind of suburban residential, standalone family homes for the next several decades until you get to maybe like the '60s and the '70s they started to build some more. So you have this 1920s, nothing until the 60s or 70s, and then nothing again much after that. So you, you, you kind of have two time periods of apartments that you can even look for. It's just crazy, and I, I had not thought about it until somebody said that. And then I would look around, and i go, oh my gosh, it's absolutely true. You can say that's a 20s apartment, that's a 60s or 70s apartment. Obviously, there are Low supply has many causes. Zoning restrictions, cultural shifts, nimbyism, illiquidity. It's not clear. But what is clear is what happens when there's low supply. 
I, I scratched my head and said, how could this possibly happen? This just seems absurd. Dragseth's documentary tells the story of a 700-unit apartment complex that got flipped and almost all the tenants were displaced. That all these people would be displaced legally, shouldn't there be protections? It seems like, you know, that puts a lot of people at risk if this, if this is legal to do. So how could this happen? And by the time I finished or even was halfway through, it, the, that had flipped completely to, of course this is happening, how could it not happen? Jennifer Arnold of IX. If it's, it's really... It's, it's really frustrating that generally, you know, if this complex weren't so big, nobody would have thought twice about it because it happens all the time. And the fact that he's going to, like, make something nice is usually seen as a good thing. Jennifer's talking about gentrification. So is gentrification to blame for all of this? Not really, only because I think the word gentrification is just a stand-in for another word. I asked Dr. Brittany Lewis of the University of Minnesota, researcher on gentrification and eviction in Minneapolis, about this word. Like as an academic, you have to tiptoe around, I'm going to call it the C word, um, the other C word, capitalism. Like, you're <laughs> like, I can't say the word because people might. No, I, not at all. I talk about the politics of capitalism all the time. It's working just the way it's supposed to. So I'm not contesting. So like I, when I go to conferences, it's really common for landlords or property managers to come up to me and talk to me, but like, but it's my investment. But I said, you know what? Capitalism is working really well for you. Jennifer Arnold of IX wasn't afraid to say the word. I asked her what type of crisis this was. A capitalism crisis <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a mix up of values. Like when it, 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 it feels like the value is that housing should be a commodity, something that is bought and sold rather than a human right. And because of that, people are sacrificed to other people's wealth. And, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> like the roots of the housing crisis are, are huge. There used to be a, a significant investments in public housing that don't exist anymore. Now they go to private developers in the form of tax credits and they sunset. Think about that compared to public money going to public housing that stays public forever. Low supply, capitalism, income inequality. This is a crisis in a crisis next to another crisis. Look, there's a crisis over there in the doorway. There's a crisis delivering the crisis. I at first thought this story's crisis was legal in nature. I addressed Lead attorney Michael so, Coxon. What I've been slowly kind of building towards, and maybe this is just me not understanding how um, how our society works. Most of the uh, productive um, actions done were done by uh, people outside of the system, um, lawyers on behalf of tenants. The the city didn't call to get the computers copied. The city didn't called to have a, do a walkthrough of the apartment. The city didn't say, hey, these, this person's been operating illegally. All that rent that they've been collecting isn't legitimate. That should be returned. That's not what the city does. That's what the, um, that's what you did. Is that simply how, um, at least in housing court, how justice works? Well, the city is certainly empowered to bring tenants. Simple questions aren't entitled simple answers. And I haven't studied this, but, I but after explaining quite a lot, 
Coxing did admit that in this case, a giant, well-resourced law firm was required to hold one property manager accountable. But I think here in a lot of other instances, sometimes litigation is the best way to proceed with a problem, particularly if you've got a lot of victims of systemic fraud and abuse. That's one of the reasons why the Consumer Fraud Act exists, right? It's a way for private attorneys general, lawyers like me, to come in and advocate for victims of abuse. Yeah, you said it's one of the best ways. I'm, I'm seeing it as almost being the only way. I told you of my bias at the beginning of this piece, and soon you'll hear a story of why I'm so biased. But first, let me just say, it's frustrating to have to have motivated tenants, an effective housing rights group, legal aid, home line, the volunteer lawyers network, a pro bono team from a big law firm, a sympathetic housing court, and a sympathetic city council. It's frustrating that it takes all of that to hold two men accountable. Frustrating. Housing court doesn't seem fair. It makes you want to. Let's just start over. Let's get rid of all of these precedents and all these things that, that have been um, kind of implemented by those in power to, for their own interests. Let's just start over. Mm-hmm. What's uh, crazy about that idea? Attorney well, Larry uh, McDonough, he helped create many of the laws for Hennepin County's housing court. I wouldn't say it's crazy, but that's essentially what a revolution is, right? So when the Bolsheviks overthrew the Tsar, that's essentially what they were doing. Um, that's, uh, that's what the French Revolution was. Um, that was the revolution that happened in Iran. So that's essentially what revolutions do. So th- the problem with kind of wiping the slate clean is no one person's in control of what the new slate's going to be. And too often, when you wipe the slate clean, people that ultimately come into power start to evolve into the same kind of kind of lust for power, and people that are wealthy figure out ways to um, basically get close to that power. McDonough says that one person or one group in charge can sour a revolution. Previously, I was lamenting that it took so many people and groups just to hold two people accountable. But perhaps that's simply how it should work. Many people to hold people accountable. Because if it was just one person with the power to fix things, well, that power can go both ways. At the end of my stay with the apartment shop, my girlfriend and I forgot to submit in writing that we weren't renewing our lease. When I dropped off our keys, one staff member told me we were fined a cancellation fee plus another month of rent. The bill ended up being $1,808.06. I had told them multiple times that we were moving out in person and on the phone. I had scheduled a walkthrough. We had the walkthrough, but legally, I was supposed to give them a letter. But still, I complained. Steve friends came over, looked at my lease, And he said something like, I'm sorry, but you have to be held accountable. I angrily said to him, accountable? You, a man operating a business with a banned silent business partner, someone who's been held in contempt of court, someone who submitted fake leases? You're telling me I need to be held accountable? A woman overheard me and butted in saying, 
Well, what, my daughter just moved into this apartment and it's still a mess, it's disgusting. I'm demanding her deposit back now. She caused an even greater disturbance than I. The staff of the apartment shop turned their attention to the angry client and I left. In mid-June 2019, 4,361 tenants received their checks from the class action, as did my girlfriend and me. So we got the checks. The checks are right here. How much do you think they're going to be for Abby? Um, I, I don't know. I guess it's probably going to be like 1500 bucks. Wow, I was not far off. Well, 1900 bucks. That's pretty good. Dang. Oh my god. It's a nice byproduct. I mean, it's a nice byproduct. Justice would be like people being able to have a safe house that doesn't have a bunch of cockroaches in it. <laughs> Is this holding friends accountable? The return of $18.5 million? $12 million to the tenants, the rest of the law firm? Friends was right though. Holding people accountable is important. What's odd is this accountability that we all agree is so great almost didn't happen. Right before Friends was discovered for submitting fake leases, a settlement was on the table for the original TRA. Jennifer Arnold tells the story. We were negotiating a settlement deal and me and Roberto felt like it was a reasonable deal. I don't remember what it was now. And we called the tenants to be like, hey, you know, this is the deal. Do you, do you think it would be good? Of course, it included money for them. And they were all like, no, not for what we've put up with, like not for what we have 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 dealt with. And then we got to court the next day and um, friends' lawyers quit and he tried to withdraw the affidavit and all this stuff came out about um, about him misrepresenting how many people lived in the building. So it was crazy. In 2016, at one of IX's first meetings, they sang, No nos moveran, we shall not be moved. There have been successes and failures along the way. Let's end with two short stories. This first one's a success. This family was featured before in the piece. The son may have a cognitive disability. They suffered a cold winter before, but now things are better. What did you do when it was cold, when you didn't have heat? So I got the jackets, my pants, yeah. everything in the apartment. Hey guys, sleeping well. The sack, everything. How did you sleep? Are <laughs> you sleeping well? Yeah, I sleep in with everything with the sack, you know, the sweater. Oh, yeah. you'd go to sleep so with very socks. Cold, yeah, very cold over here. How, how did you think about when there was no heat? And by the way, we couldn't sleep because I know that cold it is. No heat, but sometimes we use it as sweater, including a blanket. That's what happened winter or the summer. I'm not sure about it. Well, we'll see. Yeah, it's nice. Everything's good now. I'm very happy with the new owner. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for your time. No Sorry to bother you during dinner. <laughs> <laughs>
It's okay, no worries. Uh, we're here today because we are fast coming up on one year uh, without stability in the buildings in the Corcoran Five. Five buildings. And now, hopefully, another success friends. story. Um, on June 27, 2019, the day before I released this piece, a rally was held to bolster support for the Corcoran tenants. I told tenant Chloe Jackson that I'm actually going to release this documentary tomorrow. She said I ought to hold off. I asked why. Because the, the story isn't over. It's still more. Me and my neighbors are still in limbo right now. I mean, it's obvious what you want to happen. Cooperative, I'm assuming. That's what's going to happen. The cooperative is going to happen no matter what it takes, no matter how long the fight is. long as if me and my neighbors are fighting together, we're, we're going to win. So It's not over. It's definitely, it's nowhere near over. Not yet. Maybe I'll, I'll throw this in at the end of the doc when I release it tomorrow. That'd be dope. So the ending is it's not over. It's not over. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I interviewed 37 tenants. 11 of them came from a Facebook group set up by IX. Stephen Friends did not respond to interview or statement requests. My name is Matthew Schneeman. I produced, edited, and did the music for this piece. Thanks to Joey Peters, Filiberto Nolesco Gomez, Taryn Fanouf, Kirsten Delagarde, Will Wilkinson, and Wes Langle.